Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax and enjoy as you fall asleep. We are reading chapters 15 and 16 of the life and achievements of Don Quixote de la Mancha. Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program, please leave us feedback on your podcast platform and share it with a friend. You might both sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple z.media. That's three z's.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast or post about us on the Reddit or sleep channel. Today's music was brought to you by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 15 Of what happened to Don Quixote's squire with the famous device of the curate and the barber. The history recounting what the Knight of the Sorrowful Figure did when he found himself alone informs us that, having performed many strange antics after Sancho's departure, he mounted the top of a high rock and began to deliberate on a subject that he had often considered before, without coming to any resolution that was, which was the best and most proper model for his imitation, Orlando in his furious fits, or Amatus in his melancholy moods, and thus he argued with himself, if Orlando was as valiant a knight as he is allowed to have been, where is the wonder? Since, in fact, he was enchanted and could only be slain by having a needle thrust into the sole of his foot, therefore he always wore shoes of iron. But setting aside his valor, let us consider his madness, and if he was convinced of his lady's cruelty, it was no wonder he ran mad. But how can I imitate him in his frenzy without a similar cause? I should do my Dulcinea manifest wrong if I should be seized with the same species of frenzy as that of Orlando Furioso. On the other side, I see that Amadis de Gaulle, finding himself disdained by his lady Oriana, only retired to the poor rock, accompanied by a hermit, and there wept abundantly until heaven succored him in his great tribulation. All honor, then, to the memory of Amadis and let him be the model of Don Quixote de la Mancha, of whom shall be said that if he did not achieve great things, he at least died in attempting them, and though neither rejected nor disdained by my Dulcinea, it is sufficient that I am absent from her. Now to the work, come to my memory, ye deeds of Amadis, and instruct me in the task of imitation. He thus passed the time, and in writing engraving on the barks of trees many verses of a plaintive kind or in praise of his Dulcinea. Among those afterwards discovered, only the following were entire and legible. I, ye lofty trees, with spreading arms, the pride and shelter of the plain, 
ambush shrubs and flowery charms, which here in springing glory reign, if my complaints may pity move, hear the sad story of my love, while with me here you pass your hours, should you grow faded with my cares, I'll bribe you with refreshing showers, you shall be watered with my tears, distant, though present in idea, I mourn my absent Dulcinea del Toboso. 2. While I through honor's thorny ways in search of distant glory rove, malignant fate my toil repays with endless woes and hopeless love, thus I on barren rocks despair, and curse my stars, yet bless my fair love, on with snakes, has left his dart, and now does like a fury rave, and scourge and sting on every part, and into madness lashes slave, distant, though present in idea, I mourn my absent Dulcinea del Toboso. The whimsical addition at the end of each stanza occasioned no small amusement to those who found the verses, for they concluded that Don Quixote had thought that, unless to the name of Dulcinea he added Del Toboso, the object of his praise would not be known, and they were right, as he afterwards confessed. Here, however, it will be proper to leave him, wrapped up in poetry and grief, to relate what happened to the squire during his embassy. As soon as Sancho had gained the high road, he directed his course to Toboso, and the next day he came within sight of the inn where the misfortune of the blanket had befallen him, and fancying himself again flying in the air, he felt no disposition to enter it, although it was then the hour of dinner, and he longed for something warm. And as he stood doubtful whether or not to enter, two persons came out who recognized him. Pray, Signor, said one to the other, is not that Sancho Panza yonder on horseback, who, as our friend's housekeeper told us, accompanied her master as his squire? Truly it is, said the licentiate, and that is our Don Quixote's horse. No wonder they knew him so well, for they were the priest and the barber of his village, and the very persons who had passed sentence on the mischievous books. Being now certain it was Sancho Panza and Rosinante, and hoping to hear some tidings of Don Quixote, the priest went up to him, and calling him by his name, friend, said he, where have you left your master? Sancho immediately knew them, and resolved to conceal the place of Don Quixote's retreat. He therefore told them that his master was very busy about a certain affair of the greatest importance to himself, which he durst not discover for the eyes in his head. No, no, quoth the barber, that story will not pass. If you do not tell us where he is, we shall conclude that you have murdered and robbed him since you come thus upon his horse. See, then, that you produce the owner of that horse, or will be to you. He then freely related to them in what state he had left him, and how he was then carrying a letter to the Lady Dulcinea del Toboso, with whom his master was up to the years in love. They were astonished at Sancho's report, and though they knew the nature of their friend's derangement, yet every fresh instance was a new source of wonder. They begged Sancho to shew them the letter he was carrying to the lady. He said it was written in a pocketbook, and that his master had ordered him to get it copied in the first town he should arrive at. The priest said if he would shew it to him, he would transcribe it in a fair character. Sancho put his hand into his bosom to take out the book, but found it not, 
for it remained with its owner, who had forgotten to give it him. When Sancho found he had no book, he turned as pale as death, he laid hold of his beard with both hands, and tore away half of it, bestowing at the same time sundry blows upon his nose and mouth. The priest and barber asked him wherefore he treated himself so roughly. Wherefore, he answered Sancho, but that I have let slip through my fingers three ascolts, each of them a castle. How so? replied the barber. I have lost the pocketbook, answered Sancho, that contained the letter to Dulcinea, and a bill signed by my master, in which he ordered his niece to deliver to me three colts out of four or five he had at home. This led him to mention his loss of Dapple, but the priest bid him be of good cheer, telling him that when he saw his master he would engage him to renew the order in a regular way, for one written in a pocketbook would not be accepted. Sancho was comforted by this, and said that he did not care for the loss of the letter, as he could almost say it by heart, so they might write it down, wherein when they pleased. Repeat it, then, Sancho, quoth the barber, and we will write it afterwards. Sancho then began to scratch his head, in order to fetch the letter to his remembrance, now he stood upon one foot, and then upon the other, sometimes he looked down upon the ground, sometimes up to the sky, then, biting off half a nail, and keeping his hearers long in expectation, he said, at the beginning I believe it said, I and subterrane lady. No, said the barber, not subterrane, but superhumane lady. Aye, so it was, said Sancho. Then, if I do not mistake, it went on, the stabbed, the waking, and the pierced, kisses your honor's hands, ungrateful and most regardless fair, and then it said I know not what of health and sickness that he sent, and so he went on, until at last he ended with thine till death, the night of the sorrowful figure. They were both greatly diverted at Sancho's excellent memory, desiring him to repeat the letter twice more, that they also might get it by heart, in order to write it down in due time. Thrice Sancho repeated it, and added to it fifty other extravagances, relating to them also many other things concerning his master, but not a word of the blanket. He informed them likewise, how his lord, upon his return with a kind dispatch from his lady Dulcinea, was to set about endeavoring to become an emperor, or at least a king, for so it was concerted between them, a thing that would be very easily done, considering the valor and strength of his arm, and when this was accomplished, his master was to marry him, as by that time he should, probably, be a widower, and give him to wife one of the empress's maids of honor, heiress to a large and rich territory on the mainland, for as to islands, he was quite out of conceit with them. You talk like a wise man, said the priest, and a good Christian, but we must now contrive to relieve your master from this unprofitable penance. So having deliberated together on the best means of accomplishing their purpose, a device occurred to the priest, exactly fitted to Don Quixote's humor, and likely to effect what they desired, which was, that he should perform himself the part of a damsel errant, and the barber equip himself as her squire, in which disguise they should repair to Don Quixote, and the curate, presenting himself as an afflicted and distressed lady, 
should beg a boon of him, which he, as a valorous knight could not do otherwise than grant, and this should be a request that he would accompany her whither she should lead him to redress an injury done her by a discourteous knight, entreating him, at the same time, not to desire her to remove her mask, nor make any farther inquiries concerning her until he had done her justice on that wicked knight. He made no doubt but that Don Quixote would consent to any such terms, and they might thus get him away from that place and carry him home where they would endeavor to find some remedy for his extraordinary malady. Chapter 16 How the priest and the barber proceeded in their project, with other things worthy of being related. The barber liked well the priest's contrivance, and they immediately began to carry it into execution. They borrowed a petticoat and headdress of the landlady, and the barber made himself a huge beard of the tail of a pied ox, in which the innkeeper used to hang his comb. The hostess having asked them for what purpose they wanted those things, the priest gave her a brief account of Don Quixote's insanity and the necessity of that disguise to draw him from his present retreat. The host and hostess immediately conjectured that this was the same person who had once been their guest and the master of the blanketed squire, and they related to the priest what had passed between them without omitting what Sancho had been so careful to conceal. In the meantime, the landlady equipped the priest to admiration. She put him on a cloth petticoat all paint and slashed, and a corset of green velvet with a border of white satin. The priest would not consent to wear a woman's headdress, but put on a little white quilted cap, which he used as a nightcap, and bound one of his garters of black taffeta about his forehead, and with the other made a kind of veil, which covered his face and beard very well. He then pulled his hat over his face, which was so large that it served him for an umbrella, and wrapping his cloak around him, he got upon his mule sideways like a woman. The barber mounted also, with a beard that reached to his girdle, of a color between sorrel and white, being, as before said, made of the tail of a pied ox. But scarcely had they got out of the inn when the curate began to think that it was indecent for a priest to be so accoutred, although for so good a purpose, and, acquainting the barber with his scruples, he begged him to exchange apparel, as it would better become him to personate the distressed damsel, and he would himself act the squire, as being a less profanation of his dignity. They now set forward on their journey, but first they told Sancho that their disguise was of the utmost importance towards disengaging his master from the miserable life he had chosen, and that he must by no means tell him who they were, and if he should inquire, as no doubt he would, whether he had delivered the letter to Dulcinea, he should say he had, and that she, not being able to read or write, had answered by word of mouth, and commanded the knight, on pain of her displeasure, to repair to her immediately upon an affair of much importance, for, with this, and what they intended to say themselves, they should certainly reconcile him to a better mode of life, and put him in the way of soon becoming an emperor or a king, as to an archbishop, he had nothing to fear on that subject. Sancho listened to all this, and imprinted it well in his memory, and gave them many thanks for promising to advise his lord to be an emperor, and not an archbishop for he was persuaded that, 
in rewarding their squires, emperors could do more than Archbishop Serret. He told them also it would be proper he should go before to find him and deliver him his lady's answer, for, perhaps, that alone would be sufficient to bring him out of that place without farther trouble. They agreed with Sancho and determined to wait for his return with intelligence of his master. Sancho entered the mountain pass and left them in a pleasant spot, refreshed by a streamlet of clear water and shaded by rocks and overhanging foliage. While they were reposing in the shade, a voice reached their ears, which, although unaccompanied by any instrument, sounded sweet and melodious. They were much surprised, since that was not a place where they might expect to hear fine singing, for although it is common to tell of shepherds with melodious voices warbling over hills and dales, yet this is rather poetical fancy than plain truth. Besides, the verses they heard were not those of a rustic muse, but of refined and courtly invention, as will appear by the following stanzas. I. What makes me languish and complain, hope tis disdain, what yet more fiercely tortures me? Tis jealousy, how have I my patience lost, by absence crossed, then, hope, farewell, there's no relief, I sink beneath a pressing grief, nor can a wretch, without despair, scorn, jealousy, and absence bear. 2. Where shall I find a speedy cure? Death is sure dot and all milder means to set me free, inconstancy, can nothing else my pains assuage, distracting rage, what, dire change? Lucinda lose, or rather let me madness choose, but judge what we endure when death or madness are a cure. The hour, the season, the solitude, the voice, and the skill of the singer all conspired to impress the auditors with wonder and delight, and they remained for some time motionless in expectation of hearing more, but finding the silence continue, they resolved to see who it was who had sung so agreeably and were again detained by the same voice regaling their ears with this other song. A Sonnet O sacred friendship, heaven's delight, which, tired with man's unequal mind, took to thy native skies thy flight, while scarce thy shadows left behind. Blessed genius, now resume thy seat, destroy imposture and deceit, harmonious peace and truth renew, shew the false friendship from the true. The song ended with a deep sigh, and they went in search of the unhappy person whose voice was no less excellent than his complaints were mournful. They had not gone far when, turning the point of a rock, they perceived a man of the same appearance that Sancho had described Cardinio to them. The man expressed no surprise, but stood still in a pensive posture without again raising his eyes from the ground. The priest, who was a well-spoken man, went up to him and, in few but very impressive words, entreated him to forsake that miserable kind of life and not hazard so great a misfortune as to lose it in that inhospitable place. Cardinio was at this time perfectly tranquil, and he appeared surprised to hear them speak of his concerns, and replied, It is very evident to me, gentlemen, whoever you are, that heaven, which succors the good, and often even the wicked, unworthy as I am, sends to me in this solitude persons who, 
being sensible how irrational is my mode of life, would divert me from it. But by flying from this misery I shall be plunged into worse, for so overwhelming is the sense of my misery, I sometimes become like a stone, void of all knowledge and sensation. But, gentlemen, if you come with the same intention that others have done, I beseech you to hear my sad story, and spare yourselves the trouble of endeavoring to find consolation for an evil which has no remedy. The two friends, being desirous of hearing his own account of himself, entreated him to indulge them, assuring him they would do nothing but what was agreeable to him, either in the way of remedy or advice. The unhappy young man began his melancholy story thus, almost in the same words in which he had related it to Don Quixote and the goatherd some few days before, when, on account of Queen Madassima and Don Quixote's zeal in defending the honor of Nyarantri, the tale was abruptly suspended, but Cardinio's sane interval now enabled him to conclude it quietly. On coming to the circumstance of the love letters, he repeated one which Don Fernando found between the leaves of Emma's de Gaulle, which had been first lent to Lucinda, and afterwards to him. It was as follows. Each day I discover in you qualities which raise you in my esteem, and therefore, if you would put it in my power to discharge my obligations to you, without prejudice to my honor, you may easily do it. I have a father who knows you, and has an affection for me, who will never force my inclinations, and will comply with whatever you can justly desire, if you really have that value for me which you profess, and which I trust you have. This letter had made me resolve to demand Lucinda in marriage, but it was this letter, also, which made him determine upon my ruin before my design could be effected. I told Don Fernando that Lucinda's father expected that the proposal should come from mine, but that I durst not mention it to him, lest he should refuse his consent, not that he was ignorant of Lucinda's exalted merits, which might ennoble any family of Spain, but because I had understood from him that he was desirous I should not marry until it should be seen what Duke Ricardo would do for me. In short, I told him that I had not courage to speak to my father about it, being full of vague apprehensions and sad forebodings. In reply to all this, Don Fernando engaged to induce my father to propose me to the father of Lucinda, O ambitious Marius. Cruel Catalan, Wicked Scylla, Crafty Galilon, Perfidious Valido, Vindictive Julian, O covetous Judas, Cruel, wicked, and crafty traitor. What injury had been done thee by a poor wretch who so frankly disclosed to thee the secrets of his heart? Wherein had I offended thee? Have I not ever sought the advancement of thy interest and honor? But why do I complain, miserable wretch that I am? For when the stars are adverse, what is human power? Who could have thought that Don Fernando obliged by my services, and secure of success wherever his inclinations led him, should take such cruel pains to deprive me of my jewel, but no more of these unavailing reflections, I will now resume the broken thread of my sad story. Don Fernando, thinking my presence an obstacle to the execution of his treacherous design, resolved to send me to pay for six horses which he had bought, 
merely as a pretext to get me out of the way that he might the more conveniently execute his diabolical purpose. Could I foresee such treachery? Could I even suspect it? Surely not, and I cheerfully consented to depart immediately. That night I had an interview with Lucinda and told her what had been agreed upon between Don Fernando and myself, assuring her of my hopes of a successful result. She, equally unsuspicious of Don Fernando, desired me to return speedily since she believed the completion of our wishes was only deferred until proposals should be made to her father by mine. I know not whence it was, but as she spoke her eyes filled with tears and some sudden obstruction in her throat prevented her articulating another word. I executed my commission to Don Fernando's brother, by whom I was well received, but not soon dismissed. All this was a contrivance of the false Fernando, and I felt disposed to resist the injunction, as it seemed to me impossible to support life so many days absent from Lucinda, especially having left her in such a state of dejection. Judge of my horror on receiving from her the following letter, which she contrived to send to me a distance of 18 leagues by a special messenger. The promise Don Fernando gave you to intercede with your father he has fulfilled, more for his own gratification than your interest. Know, sir, that he has demanded me to wife, and my father, allured by the advantage he thinks Don Fernando possesses over you, has accepted this proposal so eagerly that the marriage is to be solemnized two days hence. Conceive my situation. Heaven grant this may come to your hand before mine be compelled to join his who breaks his promised faith. I set out immediately, my rage against Don Fernando, and the fear of losing the rich reward of my long service and affection, gave wings to my speed, and the next day I reached our town, at the moment favorable for an interview with Lucinda. I went privately, having left my mule with the honest man who brought me the letter, and fortune was just then so propitious that I found Lucinda at the grate. We saw each other, but how? Who is there in the world that can boast of having fathomed and thoroughly penetrated the intricate and ever-changing nature of woman? Certainly none. As soon as Lucinda saw me, she said, Cardinio, I am in my bridal habit. They are now waiting for me in the hall, the treacherous Don Fernando and my covetous father, with some others, who shall sooner be witnesses of my death than of my nuptials. Be not afflicted, my friend, but endeavor to be present at this sacrifice, which, if my arguments cannot avert, I carry a dagger about me, which can oppose a more effectual resistance, by putting an end to my life, and will give you a convincing proof of the affection I have ever borne you. I answered, with confusion and precipitation, let your actions, madam, prove the truth of your words. If you carry a dagger to secure your honor, I carry a sword to defend you, or kill myself if fortune proves adverse. I do not believe she heard all I said, being hastily called away, for the bridegroom waited for her. Here the night of my sorrow closed in upon me, here set the sun of my happiness. My eyes were clouded in darkness, and my brain was disordered. 
I was irresolute whether to enter her house and seemed bereaved of the power to move, but recollecting how important my presence might be on that occasion, I exerted myself and hastened thither. Being perfectly acquainted with all the avenues, I escaped observation and concealed myself in the hall behind the hangings whence I could see all that passed. Who can describe the flutterings of my heart and my various sensations as I stood there? The bridegroom entered the hall in his usual dress, accompanied by a cousin of Lucinda, and no other person was present except the servants of the house. Soon after, from a dressing room, came forth Lucinda, accompanied by her mother and two of her own maids, adorned in the extreme of courtly splendor. The agony and distraction I endured allowed me not to observe the particulars of her dress. I remarked only the colors, which were carnation and white, and the precious stones that glittered on every part of her attire, surpassed, however, by the singular beauty of her fair and golden tresses, in the splendor of which the brilliance of her jewels and the blaze of the surrounding lights seemed to be lost. O memory, thou mortal enemy of my repose! Were it not better, thou cruel faculty, to represent to my imagination her conduct at that period, that, moved by so flagrant an injury, I may strive, if not to avenge it, at least in this life of pain? I say, then, continued Cardinio, that, being all assembled in the hall, the priest entered, and having taken them both by the hand, in order to perform what is necessary on such occasions, when he came to these words, will you, Signora Lucinda, take Signor Don Fernando, who is here present, for your lawful husband, as our Holy Mother the Church commands? I thrust out my head and neck through the tapestry, and with attentive ears and distracted soul awaited Lucinda's reply as the sentence of my death or the confirmation of my life. Oh, that I had then dared to venture forth and to have cried aloud, Ah, Lucinda, Lucinda! Remember that you are mine and cannot belong to another. Ah, fool that I am! Now I am absent, I can say what I ought to have said, but did not. Now that I have suffered myself to be robbed of my soul's treasure, I am cursing the thief on whom I might have revenged myself if I had been then as prompt to act as I am now to complain. I was then a coward and a fool. No wonder, therefore, if I now die ashamed, repentant, and mad. The priest stood expecting Lucinda's answer, who paused for a long time, and when I thought she would draw forth the dagger in defense of her honor, or make some declaration which might redound to my advantage, I heard her say in a low and faint voice, I will. Don Fernando said the same, and the ring being put on, they remained tied in an indissoluble band. The bridegroom approached to embrace his bride, and she, laying her hand on her heart, fainted in the arms of her mother. Imagine my condition after that fatal yes, by which my hopes were frustrated, Lucinda's vows and promises broken, and I forever deprived of all chance of happiness. On Lucinda's fainting, all were in confusion, and her mother, unlacing her bosom to give her air, discovered in it a folded paper, which Don Fernando instantly seized, and read it by the light of one of the flambeaux, after which he sat himself down in a chair 
apparently full of thought and without attending to the exertions made to recover his bride. During this general consternation I departed, indifferent whether I was seen or not. I quitted the house and returning to the place where I had left the mule, I mounted and rode out of the town, not daring to stop or even to look behind me and when I found myself alone on the plain, concealed by the darkness of the night, the silence inviting my lamentations, I gave vent to a thousand execrations on Lucinda and Don Fernando, as if that, alas, could afford me satisfaction for the wrongs I had sustained. I called her cruel, false, and ungrateful, and above all, mercenary, since the wealth of my enemy had seduced her affections from me. But amidst all these reproaches, I sought to find excuses for her submission to parents whom she had ever been accustomed implicitly to obey, especially as they offered her a husband with such powerful attractions. Then again, I considered that she need not have been ashamed of avowing her engagement to me, since, had it not been for Don Fernando's proposals, her parents could not have desired a more suitable connection, and I thought how easily she could have declared herself mine when on the point of giving her hand to my rival. In fine, I concluded that her love had been less than her ambition, and she had thus forgotten those promises by which she had beguiled my hopes and cherished my passion. In the utmost perturbation of mind, I journeyed on the rest of the night, and at daybreak reached these mountains, over which I wandered three days more, without road or path, until I came to a valley not far hence, and inquiring of some shepherds for the most rude and solitary part, they directed me to this place, where I instantly came, determined to pass here the remainder of my life. Among these crags, my mule fell down dead through weariness and hunger, and thus was I left, extended on the ground, famished and exhausted, neither hoping nor caring for relief. How long I continued in this state I know not, but at length I got up, without the sensation of hunger, and found near me some goatherds, who had undoubtedly relieved my wants. They told me of the condition in which they found me, and of many wild and extravagant things that I had uttered, clearly proving the derangement of my intellects, and I am conscious that since then I have committed a thousand extravagances, tearing my garments, cursing my fortune, and repeating in vain the beloved name of my enemy. When my senses return, I find myself so weary and bruised that I can scarcely move. My usual abode is in the hollow of a cork tree, large enough to enclose this wretched body. Thus I pass my miserable life, waiting until it shall please heaven to bring it to a period or erase from my memory the beauty and treachery of Lucinda and the perfidy of Don Fernando. Otherwise, heaven have mercy on me, for I feel no power to change my mode of life. Here Cardinio concluded his long tale of love and sorrow, and just as the priest was preparing to say something consolatory, he was prevented by the sound of a human voice, which, in a mournful tone, was heard to say one of the